0: Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirers Funds. We implement the Acquirers multiple in a highly liquid, tax efficient, and capital efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. All right, take three. (laughs) Go. (laughs) Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Daniel Grioli of Giscard. He's a former allocator turned fund manager. He's learned some lessons, and we want to talk to him about what they are right after this. <laughs>
1: Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com.
0: Hi, Daniel. How are you?
1: Good, Toby. How are you?
0: Very well. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, we should say we've had some technical difficulties trying to record this through a uh, fiber optic cable or multiple fiber optic cables connecting the, uh, the U.S. to, uh, to Melbourne, uh, but it seems to be working a little bit better now.
1: It must be all those highway listing devices. That,
0: that's right. Um, so Giscard, where does that come from?
1: So it's a, a Norman French word. It uh, means crafty or cunning. It's a title that's been given to various people through history, but its antecedents are actually a lot older. It comes from two Norse words because the Vikings invaded Normandy. And the two Norse words are wise and brave. And I think that investors to be successful need to combine those two qualities. They need to be wise, but they also have to have the bravery to act. And it's French, so it sounds kind of sophisticated and cool. So, but, but you're that's Italian. It you,
0: you didn't want to choose an Italian word.
1: Uh, I guess. Well, in some ways, it is kind of related to Italian history because one of the people that um, that had that surname Giscard was actually quite prominent in Italian history. So, an interesting adventurer and um, military leader. If you want to look him up, his name's Robert Giscard.
0: I've recently finished a book on the history of Britain, and I, I know that the Norman area is where William the Conqueror, who was the first uh, king to unite all of Great Britain or England at least. So uh, so I'm happy to hear that there are some Norman words, Norse, Norman Norse words that continue on. So you, you've got an interesting... Um, career because you started in Australia and then you moved to London where you worked in structuring at Deutsch and then you came back to Australia to work in a superannuation fund um, which is like uh, a pension fund in the States. So what was your role in the superannuation fund?
1: So I started out as a bit of a, a generalist at a, a fund that at the time was about five billion dollars Australian assets under management, and then the financial crisis hit, and we got to four billion pretty quickly. So that was an eye opening experience, you know, losing 25% of a multi asset, supposedly diversified portfolio uh, very quickly. Uh, but at the time, I was covering everything, so everything from the cash portfolios right through to illiquid unlisted portfolios, which had everything in them. Ah, I love the mug. Um. Says I love
0: (laughs) Australia if you can't see it at home.
1: So, yeah, we we covered everything from we had aircraft leasing, agriculture funds, uh, liquid hedge funds, fund of funds, you name it. So it was a very broad experience and then over time and through different roles, I started to focus primarily on the listed asset classes and then equities, but also on multi-asset strategy. So I spent a lot of time working on the fund's strategic asset allocation, but also taking tilts around that. Some people call that dynamic asset allocation, other people call it market timing. Where you draw the line between the two is kind of subjective.
0: As a manager, and I know I have other managers who listen to the podcast, I'm always interested in how allocators think about managers. Uh, how does one manager stand out? So I've heard you discuss this before and we've discussed it before. You like to compare a manager to their their own universe or the first part of their funnel. Yes,
1: yeah, so the, the underlying idea is that you've got to be looking for feedback into your process. So how can a fund manager look for feedback on what they do? Well, they can look at each decision that they make independently as if it was a portfolio and compare the next decision layer to that to see what it adds. So if you think about how most fund managers' processes work, and I've seen millions of these inverted funnel diagrams where you start at the top with the whole universe, and then you filter for liquidity. And then if you're a value manager, you, some sort of price screen or a growth manager, some sort of EPS growth screen. And then you have your team of analysts and they analyze the stocks that pass the screen. And then the portfolio manager picks the portfolio as the last step. What you wanna do is you wanna see the value that each layer is adding. And in many cases, the layer that does the majority of the work is that screen. Because if you think about it, say there's 10,000 stocks in the universe, And then you take out the illiquid names. You're probably left with 5,000. And then you screen and you've got a short list of 500 names. So you've just gone from 10,000 to 500 with screening. So it's cut out 95% of your universe. It's done 95% of the work before the analysts have even looked at a balance sheet. So what does that screen do? And if you ran that just as a portfolio, how would it do? So what is your team below that point adding? So what are the analysts adding in terms of stock names? And what is the portfolio manager adding in terms of risk management and position sizing? And I was always really interested in the fund managers that did that analysis. And what surprised me, because I instituted a policy of asking everybody that question in every meeting I had for about a year to year to two years, I think I asked the question. And 90% of the managers I asked hadn't done the analysis. And that shocked me, no end. Because it's to me, it's the equivalent of a sports team not watching the game tape to see what they did right or wrong.
0: It's funny. That's exactly the process that I went through to go from being mostly discretionary to being mostly quantitative because I realized that the universe that I was drawing from was consistently outperforming and I whatever I was doing at that final stage was reducing returns pretty materially so um, I'm happy to hear that that's that's one of the things that you do and that's one of the things that I do track so now you're a manager uh, at Giscard and you manage you have an investment management side to the business Uh, what of those lessons when you're an allocator have you taken over uh, when you're deciding how you construct the strategy and then how you market the strategy?
1: I think the biggest lesson is there was a a big disconnect between what the fund manager thought we as the allocator or the client was looking for and what we were looking for. And that disconnect in some ways informs what I do now. So I'll give you an example. So the fund manager would come to me and say, well, look at my returns. They're fantastic. I've outperformed. I've done it with these characteristics. I've delivered net alpha after fees, you should hire me. That's not the problem as an allocator I was trying to solve because, yes, I can find a great manager that does a great job, but that's not my problem. My problem is I need to find five or six, or if I'm a really large pension fund, 10 or 15 of these managers. And not only do I have to find 10 or 15, which is hard, they have to play nicely together. And that's even harder. And what I learned over time was that once you start getting past three or four managers, the interaction effects really start to crowd out what the manager's doing. Um, And the way I'd explain it to a fund manager is it's no different to their own portfolio. So when they look at, for example, adding a bank stock to their portfolio, they say, well, what exposures does this bring to my portfolio? It exposes me to the underlying economy, the housing market, net interest margins, bad debts, etc. Do I have those exposures already? Do I want more of them? They're not just looking at, oh, this bank's a great bank. They're looking at what it brings, what it adds to their overall portfolio. So I used to explain to managers that we try to think the same way. And yes, you may be a great manager and you might be good at what you do, but that's not necessarily the problem that we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve a problem of creating an overall portfolio with more than one manager such as yourself and and so that disconnect just kept coming up and that issue of the interaction effects the redundancy between managers particularly with australian shares so yeah you know, i used to see for example that and i did the analysis once at a, at a, an earlier job that i had where i had access to one of the big investment banks quant model, uh, the model that their quant team, their transition management team used to analyze portfolios. And I ran all these different combinations of managers through it. And invariably, what happened was once I added a third or a fourth manager, the redundancy effects just started to cancel out the good work that the managers did. What does that so mean? Ex-
0: that they own the same stocks?
1: Well, what one manager owned, the other one didn't. So, for example, a value manager might say, oh, yeah, we're at the, the bottom of the resources cycle. I want to go long BHP. And then the growth manager says, oh, you know, we're at the bottom of the resource cycle. I want to be in a tech company. I want to be short BHP. Right. And because of the concentration in the benchmark, the stocks where you could be heavily under or overweight are, are few in number. So you you end up with this really large redundancy effect. So... What ends up happening as well is that most active equity managers in Australia, they really play a bit of a benchmark arbitrage game. And the way the game works is you underweight the top 20 names and it's those underweights that actually drive your tracking error or your variation from the benchmark. And then you spread the capital from those underweights across a few mid and small caps. And that's actually where you generate your outperformance. The problem is when you put four or five managers together doing that, you get mud. And the reason why I call it mud is it's, it's like when you're in kindergarten and you start painting and you put a bit of yellow on the canvas and then you put a bit of blue on top of the yellow and it goes to green and you think, this is great, I can mix colors. If I put red on top of blue, I get purple. But whenever you add that third color, you get brown, get mud. And it's the same with multi-manager portfolios the interaction effects, particularly in concentrated markets, so anybody who's allocating in Australia, in Canada, in the Nordic countries would know exactly what I'm talking about because it's a really big problem. Less so in emerging, but that's still relatively concentrated and a bit less so in global because it's a bit more diverse, but it's still an issue.
0: So how does a manager avoid that or how do you avoid that problem?
1: Well. Uh, The interesting thing about the manager is they're incentivized, if they're an asset-gathering manager, to run a liquid portfolio. And that means staying fairly close to the benchmark. The other incentive is that managers typically earn a percentage of assets under management-based fee. So their incentive is to not lose assets under management. And the way that they do that is by trying to, Strike the right trade-off between being active enough to be interesting to the client and not so active that you underperform and lose them and When you're running those kind of portfolios those Long only tracking error of three to five They're the ones where you get the interaction effects at their worst because you put a few of those together And you quickly very quickly go to benchmark, but you're paying active fees so Part of it is looking for managers that are willing to do something different. Part of it is by specifying different benchmarks. So, for example, with one of our managers, we excluded the 20 largest stocks on the Australian index. We did some analysis of their returns and we found they were very good at buying mid-cap and small-cap names. So we just took that benchmark risk away from them. We said, look, you know, you're not going to get penalized if one of those big stocks does well, because we're we're taking it out of your universe. So sometimes it's up to the allocator to define the universe. Uh, Sometimes it's up to the allocator to find somebody that's doing something different. Um, Sometimes it's up to the manager, but it's something that you have to be very thoughtful of because it can dominate the good work that your individual managers do.
0: So uh, at Giscard, you run a best ideas portfolio, which is something like uh, 13F replication or am I am I misdescribing that?
1: It is. It is 13F based. So the way I would describe it is a multi-manager portfolio without the managers. So essentially what I'm trying to do is create a multi-manager portfolio and remove all the frictions and the complexity and the cost that 10 years of trying to do it at a, at a pension fund you know, taught me just doesn't work. So I'm trying to create a more efficient version of a multi-manager portfolio.
0: And how do you go about doing that?
1: So I identify a, a group of what I believed are skilled managers. These managers have high conviction. And it's important to look for managers with high conviction because it's quite interesting. So at the moment, I'm tracking 15 managers. And I ran the analysis of what would happen if I just allocated to these 15 managers roughly in line with their contribution to my portfolio what would the overall portfolio look like and turns out it would have 480 stocks so i get the s p 500 and the interesting thing is these are very concentrated managers individually so each one of them has at least 40 percent of their portfolio in their top 10 stocks and yet when i combine them together in a typical sort of multi-manager You know, if you were to use a Morningstar style and you've got to fill the nine buckets, S&P 500. Right. Even if you focus on the top 50 stocks that these 15 managers hold, the top 10 uh, only account for 20% of the portfolio. So still, individually, highly active, put them together. It's amazing how fast the active bets get diluted away. So the first step is identifying the universe of managers, but there's not one universe. I actually monitor four universes. So I have a group of quality managers, growth managers, value managers, and small cap managers. And this is something I learned investing in other 13F replication strategies previously is that a lot of strategies focus on trying to find managers with great recent performance and they'll often use a lot of quantitative analysis to work out you know who has the best information ratio or whatever what i found happens with that is that you get a lot of curve fitting so you end up following a group of managers that has done well and what ends up happening what happened in in this strategy that i was invested in was the portfolio got heavy with growth oriented hedge funds uh, because they had done really really well and if you think about it if you pay somebody 2 and 20 to pick stocks you're not paying them 2 and 20 to buy you at&t or procter and gamble you want something sexy you know you want a carvana or you want a a zillow or the next big whatever so most hedge funds have a growth bias and so All this quantitative sampling to find the best pool of of managers to follow gave the portfolio a heavy growth bias. And what happened in 2016 was uh, the strategy was literally up by about 10%, this manager strategy. And then early 2016, the market sold off, so up, sorry, versus the S&P 500 it was down 10% versus the S&P 500 in a very short period of time. And then when the market recovered at the end of 2016, it was all the cyclicals that drove it higher. So it got totally whipsawed. went from plus 10, minus 10, and then missed all the recovery because it was focused on a sample of growth managers that had done well over the last two or three years. And so by ensuring that I'm looking at different universes, and that the final portfolio is a combination of them, I help to manage those style and factor effects, which are very important in so, uh, in trying to create a more sustainable, robust return.
0: So you start out with four universes and then you look for managers in each of those universes. Are you equally weighting into the universes?
1: No, no. So there is a bit of discretionary management. Actually, there's a lot of discretionary management. The reason why I don't equally weight is because um, I'm trying to manage risk. So to give you an example, we were criticizing other fund managers for not doing the analysis versus the naive portfolio. I ran the analysis of my naive manager portfolio and the results were interesting. So it did slightly better than my actual portfolio. So I'm like you, the simple quant beat me by a few basis points. But that wasn't telling the whole story. If you actually look after tax, uh, my returns were better because I have a, a risk management and I'm selling losing stocks. So the tax credit of that actually would have boosted my returns at a fees. But also in this recent period where we had the Trump tweet at the beginning of May about China tariffs and everything selling off and then the Powell press conference at the beginning of June and everything taking off again. During that volatility, the drawdown of my portfolio was a lot less. So The risk management characteristics were a lot better. So that's another important part of it, is the position sizing and the risk management.
0: Talk to us a little bit about how you size positions uh, and how you think about each manager's contribution to um, to their own style?
1: So in terms of sizing, position, I don't do it. I don't care what the benchmark position is. But in most cases, I don't even look at it. And if I do, it's usually after the fact just because I'm curious. How I size positions is I'm looking at the risk of each stock at individual stock level and then aggregating that up at the total portfolio level. And I'm doing it that way for a couple of reasons. So I assign the maximum amount of loss that I'm happy to make on an individual position. And the reason I do it that way is that when I aggregate all of those individual stock losses together to come up with what I think total portfolio loss will be, I'm assuming that every stock is perfectly correlated with each other, which I know is not the case. Now why would I make that assumption that everything's perfectly correlated? Well, because most of the time that's not going to be the case. So I'm effectively assuming the worst and getting pleasantly surprised 80 to 90% of the time. And that's the opposite of how most people construct a portfolio. Most people will assume those correlations and try to optimize. And in that case, they're assuming the best and getting surprised 20 to 30% of the time, and typically the surprise is very bad. So I kind of feel how I'm doing things is a bit more robust by assuming that every stock is perfectly correlated and if, if they all lose money and everything has to get managed down, what is my total portfolio loss? So I think of it in that way. And once you start to think of it in that way, your position size becomes a function of both the upside that you think you'll get from that stock, but also the damage it will do to your overall portfolio if you're wrong.
0: So, for example, so if if you have a cyclical stock, how do you size something like that? What's a, what's a maximum position size at inception?
1: So, for something that's deeply cyclical, uh, maximum position size is probably about three percent of the portfolio.
0: And then something that's more stable, compounder.
1: Maximum of nine percent.
0: So that's quite a large position size at inception.
1: Yes, and and we can hold it as we can let it double without having to sell. That's how, another how many, thing.
0: How many positions altogether?
1: Between fifteen and thirty.
0: So it's very concentrated.
1: So it's very concentrated, and the reason for that is, the, the way I conceptualize what I'm trying to do is I'm creating cordial, and if you think about coca-cola for example if you go to the shop and you buy a bottle of coke that's pre-mixed you're paying mostly for water there's that much syrup at the bottom and the rest is water and you're paying for water whereas at a restaurant they will buy post mix they'll buy the concentrate and they'll add the water so if they sell you a glass of coke their cost is probably five cents and they're charging you, you know, whatever for it so by running a concentrated portfolio, what I'm trying to give my clients is that cordial, is that concentrate where if you were to run a typical multi-manager portfolio and you had five or six active managers together, once you account for the redundancy and the interaction, there's probably 15, 20 stocks that are driving all your risk and return. And yet you're paying these six managers all this money largely to manage risk, and the risk that they're managing is – their tracking error and their liquidity so that they can maintain their capacity and keep the farm. They're not actually managing your risk, they're managing their business risk. So if at the end of doing that, you've just got 15 to 20 stocks that are driving all your risk of return, why can't I just give you those 15 to 20 stocks? That's really what best ideas is. And to the extent that you're worried about tracking error or underperforming the market, you add your own water go and buy the S&P 500 ETF, mix it in at whatever proportion you like. Um, It's a lot cheaper that way. You'll get the same overall outcome with less complexity and less cost.
0: So uh, when you're looking at the managers, there there, there are a few things come to mind about the 13F tracking strategies. I know Meb Faber has a book where he talks about uh, some of the research. So one of the things that Meb points out is that you don't want to hold the 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 largest position because often that's a position that a manager had conviction in and has allowed to run and so the juice might be kind of gone from that idea so how do you handle things like that
1: i think you've got to handle it by this is where it's actually a little bit difficult because it's very hard to come up with one set of rules that you can apply to all managers to figure out what conviction is So conviction can vary a lot from manager to manager. So there has to be some discretion in terms of how you figure out what a manager's highest conviction ideas are. And the example I give people is Warren Buffett. So if you look in his top 10 stocks, Wells Fargo features pretty high up the list. Now, does that mean that Buffett has an enormous amount of conviction in Wells Fargo? Probably not. It's probably more likely that he bought it a long time ago, which he did, and is sitting on a massive capital gain. And therefore, you know, the, the penalty for selling it is pretty large. And given that it's delivering a return on capital that's better than most of his alternatives, he's probably happy to sit there. Conversely, you'll often see Buffett selling Wells Fargo in his recent 13F filing. Does that mean he's lost conviction in, the strat- in Wells Fargo? Well, not necessarily. He's an insurer, and by law, insurers aren't allowed to own more than 10% of a bank. So he's trimming to maintain that 10% limit. So by understanding Buffett's situation in his process, you can interpret his conviction level. That's the example I give people. So with every manager, you need to have some understanding of their process. So at the end of the day, what I'm doing is I'm still investing in a multi-manager portfolio because I'm looking at these managers just as I would be if I was looking to give them 100 or $200 million in a mandate.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the managers who you track? Is that, is that proprietary or can you share those names?
1: I can talk a little bit about them in broad terms i probably can't give you the names but with the quality managers the quality defensive managers they typically are more concentrated they're also lower turnover so they anchor the portfolio in a few ways the the lower turnover helps to reduce turnover at the overall portfolio level but they also act as a bit of a a stabilizer compared to the other styles Uh, with the The growth managers, they're interesting because they typically have a higher turnover, so you have to make a little bit of allowances for that in how you're looking at managers. And with the small cap managers, they're also interesting because they typically tend to be more diversified. They hold more stocks. So you have to think a bit differently about how you assess conviction for them. So it's very much horses for courses. With the value managers, I tend not to buy managers that are just interested in cheap things. So there are a few managers that are looking for cheap stocks, but most of them are actually activists or some kind of special situation managers. Uh, And the reason for that is, you know, that I believe that that looking for cheap stocks can largely be done with a, a factor based or quantitative approach because you've got all the information you need. The price is a current piece of of information. Book value, earnings, cash flow, whatever it is, is a historical piece of information. So a quant process has all of the information it needs to calculate a value. Therefore, I don't see where humans have the advantage.
0: How are you uh, making the determination that one manager is better than another? Are you looking for a long track record of outperformance and then near-term underperformance? Is that is that then capturing the mean reversion to to, to come?
1: I'm actually not too bothered by performance. Yeah, obviously I wanna see a long term sustained track record. What is more interesting to me is, this is one of the interesting things about this approach. So a lot of people get hung up on the ideas and the managers and they're important and you'd expect that over time, if you pick a sample of quality managers, their hit rate should be better than 50-50. But it's not actually the main driver of the strategies' returns. In many ways, the position sizing and the risk management is as important. And that is something that I've seen over and over again, uh, both when I was looking at other managers do this and what I'm doing now. So, for example, where I've seen a lot of 13F strategies, how they put together is, you know, they'll identify a pool of managers. They'll equally weight the stocks that these managers hold. So, if there's 50 stocks, they'll get, you know, they'll get two uh, percent each in the portfolio and they'll rebalance quarterly and they'll drive enormous turnover. So there'll be enormous turnover at the manager level because often they're choosing managers based on historical performance and trying to optimize that. So that manager level turnover will drive enormous portfolio turnover and then the rebalancing will drive even more turnover. So when you see these fantastic back tests for 30 and f strategies, they're totally impractical. Because if, if a high net worth investor had to invest in 50 to 100 stocks with that kind of turnover um, and trading costs and taxes, not much of the, of the outperformance would survive that. So we've had to do things differently and we're not necessarily trying to optimise the manager picks necessarily to find the best or to try and play a mean reversion angle. What we're looking for is people that have demonstrated skill over a very long period of time and that are complementary to each other. And then the risk management and the portfolio construction adds to that.
0: Why do you think of small caps as being a category separate from say value or momentum or uh, quality or growth rather?
1: I think they're different mainly because, well, this is the the interesting thing about the 13F data. So firms report at the firm level. So you can't track fidelity because you're getting the aggregated holdings of hundreds of strategies. It's just garbage. Uh, For the same reason, you can't track Renaissance technologies. So I had a client say to me, why don't you track Renaissance? Well, it's a quant hedge fund that they track, you know, they, they hold three and a half thousand stocks and they're in and out of them daily. I have no confidence that what I'm buying today actually reflects their current thinking. So with small caps, in order to get reliable data, you need to look for firms that specialize on small stocks they you know, either boutique small cap managers and that's all that they do. Otherwise, the data that you get is just mixed in with everything else.
0: Right. So it's a, start, it's a style issue. So when you're looking at the small cap manager, are they small cap value or small cap growth or are all small cap
1: managers growth managers? It's interesting. Most of them tend to have a growth bias. Um, But having said that, I've seen some research, I remember GMO did some research years ago that looked at the performance of fallen angels in small caps. So large stocks that become small because they lose a lot of value. And they don't tend to come around all the time. They tend to come up largely in crises when a lot of stocks are pushed into the small universe. But some of those fallen angels can do quite well.
0: This is possibly where they fall out of the index too, so they lose their index, the index investor support, and that can drive the price down very rapidly.
1: Especially in Australia, once something falls out of the ASX two hundred, it falls off a liquidity cliff.
0: So, uh, when you're looking for the value managers, you're looking for you're looking for that more traditional uh, Buffett style. Um, where there's some growth factor in what they're doing. Do you find there's any overlap between the growth managers and the value managers and how do you deal with uh, overlaps?
1: Well, actually, I'm not. So, for example, one of the managers that I have in my value portfolio has a very heavy, tangible price-to-book focus. Very old school, very, very deep value. Uh, The other one is more of a a Buffett-style Good company at a reasonable price, but probably still more to the value than Buffett. The other three are all activists. So, uh, well, sorry, the other, yeah, the other one is a hedge fund that can be an activist, but the other two are activists. So, one is actively engaged in the one and only company that he owns in his portfolio. So that might be a clue as to who it is. He's on the board of that company. And I think that's really interesting when a fund manager uh, raises over a billion dollars to create a fund with only one stock and then proceeds to take a seat on the board of that company. I think that's a really interesting signal.
0: You have to give us the name. That saves us going and Googling that name.
1: I can tell you this one. It's Paul Hillal at Mantle Ridge.
0: And so he, t- he takes he, he, he a billion dollars and invests it in a single stock at a time. And
1: CSX, the CSX, yeah, the railroad company.
0: And how's his performance since he initiated that position?
1: Fantastic. Look at the chart since 2017. It's upward and onward.
0: So if he, if he, so how long do you know how long? How long is he likely to be in that position? How long has he typically held positions for in the past?
1: Well, I actually see. This is where it's interesting how you you sort of pull on different threads. So. How I heard of Paul Hillal was back in 2017, uh, sorry, 18, 2018. I went to the Columbia Business School student conference and they had several investors there. They had Seth Klarman, they had Joel Greenbat present, and then they had Paul Hillal. And Paul spent a lot of his time working with Bill Ackman. And one of the stocks that Paul was very involved with was Canadian Pacific. And he was instrumental in getting Hunter Harrison to come on as CEO and implement precision railroad scheduling, which turned Canadian Pacific around. And that's what he's doing at CSX. He again brought Hunter Harrison to CSX. Unfortunately, he passed away, but one of his Canadian Pacific Uh, Associates is now CEO of CSX and it's all about this rollout of precision railroad scheduling which most of the other railroads with the exception of Burlington Northern Santa Fe which is owned by Warren Buffett in Berkshire Hathaway most of the other railroads are also trying to take this approach and uh, it was interesting hearing him speak at the Columbia conference because one of the things that came out of that was that in the 15 or 20 years that he's been investing He's only invested in about five or 10 companies.
0: He's taking that Buffett punch card suggestion, 20 hole punch card, very seriously.
1: Very seriously, very literally. And I think that's yeah, that's an interesting signal. Now, would I put 100% of my portfolio or a client's portfolio into a single stock? No, but I would be silly to ignore somebody with that track record when he goes and does it. And especially when he as an activist, has the capacity to be a catalyst for change. So do I want some exposure to that in my portfolio? Yes. And even having 3% in my portfolio, I think the benchmark weight in the S&P 500 for CSX is something like half a percent. So it's six times, if you want to think of it in benchmark relative terms, it's six times market weight.
0: It's uh, it's remarkable that he had such a close association with Bill Ackman, who had the famous Target fund, which was the one stock that he and I think it was he he used a lot of options as well. But he ended up vaporizing a ve- the very vast majority of the capital in that, and he was he was still halal, still wanted to go ahead with that strategy.
1: <laughs> it well, it's uh, yeah, I think their their relationship dates back to college. I think.
0: Do you think uh, in? You know, you said before that there's a bias towards growth in the hedge funds. Do you think that that's a, a product of the time we are in the cycle, that it's just it's been a very rough run for value for the last five years, particularly 10 years before that, so that the value managers who are, the, there just aren't very many value managers who are outperforming. And so there's a lot of survivorship bias in this. In that they've gone away and the ones who are there are growth style investors.
1: I think that's definitely an issue. I think it's also an issue that value is easier to replicate. As I was saying before, you've got the data there. So if you think of a a quantitative process, what does a quantitative process need? It needs breadth. So you need to be able to take lots of little individual bets because in most cases, you've got a low signal strength. So you need breadth. You need the data actually need the information to analyze. And if you think of growth investing, growth happens largely in the future. So yes, you can try and find proxies for what you think is going to grow, such as momentum and other things, but it hasn't happened yet. So it's, it's unsure. But value is price relative to something that you know. So there's a lot of data there. And I think investors have become more sophisticated in doing it systematically and quantitatively and I think that's eaten the lunch of a lot of value managers you know a lot of them were basically you know running factor portfolios and they didn't even know it and now that people are consciously doing that and more money is invested in those opportunities that's making it harder I think the other thing for value managers as well is, Value typically did well when you had these nice frequent economic cycles, sort of boom bust cycle, and in the recovery stage, value does well. And we haven't really had that, and I think that's partly to do with unprecedented central bank intervention. We've had these very long, pronounced. Cycles, you know, the expansion that we're in now, the economic expansion, I think is now the longest on record. Hasn't necessarily shot the lights out in terms of the rate of growth, but it's just been this long, slow, grinding. And in that environment, I think it's a lot harder for value managers. That actually suits growth managers because, as a fund manager once told me, markets buy scarcity. So, you know, when prices are very, very high, what's scarce is value. Conversely, when earnings growth, when economic growth is slow or moderate, what's scarce is growth. And so people are willing to pay up for that. So you've had this, you know, Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold growth. And that environment has really suited the growth managers. And I think it's partly driven by central banks and interest rates. Um, And at what point that changes, I'm not sure. But I think that's definitely be ahead with, been a headwind for value managers as well, is sort of having to deal with that, that constant uh, low-rate environment. The other thing that higher rates do is they shake out good companies from bad. You know, over-leveraged companies blow up. And, you know, when when rates are very low and zero or negative in many parts of the world, you know, those companies get, get a free ride.
0: Um, let's talk about growth manager evaluation. You said that Earlier, you were saying that it's common for a growth manager in their inverted funnel. One of the first steps is to look for EPS growth, so that's earnings per share growth. Um, And I know from various research that I've undertaken, some of which we featured in quantitative value, that that's a terrible screen. You know, if you're you're screening for EPS growth, you're not going to do very well unless you're some stock-picking genius and you're able to find the ones in there that are sustainable because it's highly mean reverting.
1: That's right. So the the way I think of that, and this is where the position sizing and the risk management actually add value. So you're right. On average, if you buy stocks with high EPS growth, the results are disappointing. And Rob Arnott at Research Affiliate did some great research on this. And what he found was investors are spot on in terms of picking the stocks with high growth they get that equation correct, they can spot the superior company with the superior prospects. They just massively overpay for it. And that overpaying just overshadows you know, all the benefits and the growth. So, And then there's obviously the risk that you have with growth stocks where some disappoint. You think the growth is going to happen and it doesn't and the market punishes it. And there's the cost of that on your portfolio. So. The way I think about growth investing is a little bit like fishing. So if you think about fishing, if you know what you want to catch, you know, what sort of fish, you have some idea of its habits. You know what its habitat is, you know, the time of day when it's active, the tidal conditions when it's more likely to be uh, searching for food and things like that. So you go out fishing and you're not necessarily – You you can't guarantee that you'll catch a fish, but you're trying to look for a certain set of conditions. But then you have a choice. If, If the fish aren't biting in that place, what you should do is move on to another spot or another time. And I think with growth investing, it's kind of the same. You can look for a set of conditions, whether it's EPS growth or whatever. The secret to making it work is actually then pruning out the growth ideas that don't pan out. And I think when you look at a lot of these quantitative analyses, what happens is you know they're creating a portfolio of growth stocks. They're equally rating it and rebalancing it periodically. I would never do that. I would come up with a group, group of growth ideas, and as they don't pan out, you know, as I try fishing in that spot and I'm not catching anything, I'll move on. And I think it's that process of cutting the things that don't work early before they hurt you that actually allows you to capture – the winners and create an asymmetry between the winners and the losers. So when a lot of the research happens that rebalancing that portfolio construction doesn't get captured in the way the research question is asked and answered. And I think that's the secret to making growth work. It's being very quick to say, well, I thought this company might grow. It isn't out next fishing spot.
0: So that's the the famous old uh, Wall Street saw where they say you should uh, pull your weeds and water your flowers rather than the other way around. As in, let the winners run, let them keep going, yes. and anything that's not performing, pull it out, replant something else, and see how that goes. And you think that that's a better strategy? For, you've seen that work for a growth investor.
1: Yes, and even for a value investor, this is interesting because you know all too often value investors say to me, oh, "I reached my target price," or we have a discipline when it hits 90% of target price how do you know what the target price is just think logically the fact that this company has become so cheap is because somebody has overestimated the problems with it generally so if people got that wrong what makes you think that people are going to get it right when when it's you know the the situation's better what makes you think they're going to be any better at understanding the target price in that situation so All too often, I've seen value managers sell stocks too early. And I'm I'm thinking of a conversation with a global equity manager where I actually said to them, why don't you allow a stock to remain in a portfolio a little longer? So, for example, you buy with a value mindset, but then in terms of when to sell, you adopt more of a a trend-following momentum approach and you let the stock tell you when it's, time to sell and this manager actually had done the work on that they had researched that question and they found that in most cases on average that would have boosted returns they would have done a lot better had they not sold as early as they did they were systematically selling too early and i said to them, okay that's great you've done the work why aren't you doing that in your portfolio and they said well a couple of reasons uh the first reason is The consultants and the rating agencies would see that the weighted average P ratio of our portfolio would rise because of that, because we're holding these stocks longer. And they would question whether we're value managers and they might change their research on us. And I was shocked because I literally said to the manager, well, who's running the portfolio? You are the consultant. If you know this works, if you know this is accretive to your process, why do you care what they think?
0: It's, it sounds like a, it's a pretty good recommendation for that Phil Fisher, Warren Buffett style value because that seems to me that, that that avoids the problem of the growth manager overpaying for growth, uh, avoids the problem that the value guy has um, where it's it's easy to screen it away. So you find that happy medium where you're you're buying, you're trying to find high growth stocks, but then you're trying to pay, uh, a va- not a, necessarily a value price, but you're trying to pay at some discount to what the DCF might tell you that they're worth. Is that a fair? Is that a fair
1: assessment? Definitely. So I'll I'll, I'll add a couple more points on this. The first thing I'll say there's a, a great thing that Gerald Loeb wrote in his book, The Battle for Investment Survival. I think it was written during the Great Depression. It's an investment classic, and he makes the point that when it comes to buy decisions, you know, if you don't like something, you don't buy it, and so therefore your hit rate. All things being equal, is going to be much higher because you can, you can, you know, wait for the at fat pitch. No, no, no. Okay, with a sell decision, you can't actually avoid the decision. Every day that portfolio sits in your portfolio, you're either a holder or a, a renewed buyer or a seller. And so, because you're being forced to make sell decisions, which you are, at some point you have to sell. You should expect that your hit rate is going to be lower, and I've noticed that pattern across the hundreds of fund managers that I've worked with and met and researched is they all find selling harder. And so what everybody ends up invariably doing is coming up with some kind of rule that works for them. And they know it's not going to be right in every circumstance, but it should be right on average over time and it works for them. And I think that's about the best you can do when it comes to sell discipline.
0: I like those rules where, and I think that this works particularly well for the Buffett-style investors, where you're sizing your best ideas, the largest, when they're first in the portfolio. And then as they rise and they come closer to your estimate of intrinsic value, you're trimming them back as they become more risky. And that way, you're harvesting some return as you go. And if you ever get the, if the stock comes back, then you're in a position to buy some more. And you can, you can you don't have to learn a new stock. You You know that that particular name pretty intimately, you can become very familiar with the way that they work. So, I, and I, I think that there's some pretty good quantitative uh, recommendations to that. It's a, it's a, as a, as a strategy of gathering some value and and holding onto it as the stock grows. Do you do any? Do you, do you do you work that way? Do you trim as it goes?
1: I, I do sometimes. I'll tell you an interesting story about that because it it really illustrates. And I know this is an anecdote, and anecdotes are not data. But it really illustrates the problem with thinking in terms of target prices and and the uncertainty that you have with selling. So in my personal portfolio a few years ago, I bought a small cap stock called Blackmores. And Blackmores makes uh, vitamins and health products. And at the time, the stock had been uh, quite beaten down because most of its products were sold to three Uh, retailers the two large supermarkets and a chemist or a pharmacy chain here in Australia and they were really squeezing on price they were trying to get the most they could out of Blackmore's and they were forcing it to do a lot of cost cutting a lot of promotions it had a small but quickly growing business in Asia and as the Asian middle class is getting wealthier uh, they you know, more focused on health. And as I found out, you know, talking to some people from China, they described to me the dynamics of a 4 to one family. So four grandparents, two parents, one child. So you've got this funnel where you know the child is seen as a very important investment because you've got four grandparents, two parents, and they're all trying to make sure that this child has the best start in life. So you know, vitamins, health, and then particularly when you had the issues in China where They were putting melamine into baby formula and children were dying. Very conscious. And Australian and New Zealand products were seen as healthy and safe. So they commanded a premium. But that that all came later. At the time, Blackmore's was beaten down because these three suppliers were gouging it. So I purchased some of the stock. And it traded up slightly from where I bought it. I think I bought it around about $24. And then I sold some about $28. I did another valuation. I looked at it. I did a a free cash flow valuation. I actually used uh, the template that Professor DeModeren puts on his website at NYU Stern, which is a great resource for anybody doing their own valuations. And after a while, I took a look at it again, and I actually realized that, I'd made a mistake in selling it. So I bought it back at 28. I bought it back roughly where I sold it, kept it, and it got to mid 70s. And I revalued it again at the mid 70s. This time, the Chinese growth story had started to emerge. And so people were getting behind the stock. It's a very small company. The son of the founder owns a large block of stock. He's still the chairman. So there's very tight float. So as people started to buy this, it was getting ramped up. Now, I valued it at about $56. It was trading at $74. If I was a traditional value manager, I should have sold. But understanding the dynamics of the Australian market, I knew that it was just outside the 200 the top 200 stocks and was very close to getting reclassified into the index. And given the tight float out there and the forced buying from index funds, this was going to go further. So I actually let it run to about $80 and then it experienced a bit of a pullback. So I sold half my position and then the index effect happened. It got included, got included in the 100, I think. It ran on to $130, so way above any kind of fundament, fundamental number I could come up with. It experienced another pullback. So I sold all of the position at that point, you know, from buying at 28 to 130, that was a great gain. And then I felt like an idiot when I saw it go all the way to $220. It's always the way. But I later felt a lot better. And you know what cheered me up immensely? There was an article in the paper that the chairman and largest shareholder, Marcus Blackmore, sold a large block of his stock at $48, I think, to purchase a new boat.
0: Oh, it's an expensive purchase.
1: And that cheered me up immensely because I thought if, if the, the chairman the son of the founder, the person within the firm, if he can't understand what the target price for the stock is, if he's got no idea that this Chinese growth is coming, how does anybody know?
0: Yeah, 100%. Uh, That's coming up on time for us, Dan. Uh, If folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that?
1: So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is MarketFox. You can also find my blog, www.marketfox.org. And you can see what I'm up to with Giscard Capital at www.giscardcapital.com.
0: We'll put those links in the show notes. Daniel Grioli, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks, Toby. It's been a pleasure.